I want to look at the basic theme just to remind you, in case you haven't been here. Um, uh, I, I want to kind of look at the basic theme. I want to look at the basic theme of that we've looked at this whole time uh, in summary form. So, uh, and, and then I want to I want to look at the story in the way we've laid it out um, as we come after that theme. You guys follow me? The difference between the stories we've laid it out as opposed to just the theme we've come after. So, the basic theme we've been after all along is that the great blessing of man is to dwell with God. The great blessing of man is to dwell with God. Um, that's what we were created for. We were created to dwell with him. Uh, it, you might hear um, medieval theologians calling it, you know, sort of this um, beatific vision to, to see God as he is and to know him to the degree that a creature can, and to know him and to find blessing, all of our blessing in him. You're following me on that? So that's, that's what we, we say to, to dwell with him. And you think about the language of, I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, he, he gives us that language in Genesis 17 for the first time, but that's a summary of what was sort of promised to God's people because dwelling with him was lost at the fall. So what I'm wanting to say is this theme is the great blessing of man to dwell with God, but that privilege has been lost by the fall and must be regained by the seed of the woman. So if you remember, Adam dwells in the garden with God. Um, he has, if you will, the beatific vision in that sense. He sees him and knows him. He walks with him. Um, and, and he knows the blessing and joy of that. But he opts to sin. And he falls. And as a federal head, all of humanity falls in him. And we're all guilty and corrupted in Adam. And so then a, a curse comes, and in the midst of that curse, we get the promise. And that promise is the promise uh, that there will be, be a seed of the woman who comes to crush the head of the serpent, to save us. So we're looking for another Adam, a second Adam, a better Adam, maybe a final Adam, one who does what the first Adam failed to do, one who will conquer the serpent rather than obey him or listen to him. You guys understand the distinction there. So we're we're wait, waiting for that Adam, and then that story gets starts to get unfolded. And in the midst of it, as God is unfolding it, in every covenant that He unfolds that story in, and He unfolds it in covenants. So think Noah. He unfolds the story of dwelling with him that's been lost and dwelling with him again. Um, think Noah, right? Think uh, Abraham. Think Moses. David knew in every covenant, um, the statement is, I will be your God and you will be my people. In Revelation 21, the end of all things, the announcement is, God is our God and we're his people, right? And the reason that goes through the whole thing is because that's what was lost at the fall. What was lost at the fall is that union and communion with God that dwelling with him and knowing him and seeing him and having the joy of that. That's what's lost at the fall. That's what's promised in, to be regained in the seed of the woman, in the Messiah. And that's what gets thread through the entire story of Scripture in every covenant. Now, you guys, have heard, most of you have heard me say this so many times um, that, that you're like, okay, we get it. But some of you have forgotten already. So I, I don't want to spend too much time there, but... 
So think about the story so far. To be God's people, to dwell with him, maybe I'll say it this way, to dwell with God is to be his people, right? To be in his place. In other words, if you, if you dwell with someone, you have to be where they are. You understand that? Okay. To be in his place and, and to be under his rule and blessing. He rules over you. He blesses you. That's what it means to dwell with him. Um, so we have framed the story. We've used the frame of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing um, defined clearly in the promise of Abraham the whole time we've been here. So look at the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12. I want to remind you of this. Because you're going to see people place, uh, people in place become a big theme again in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's why I'm laying this out. Um, and blessing, really. So, Genesis chapter 12. In Abraham, which we'll call, if, if, if we were going to say the covenant of grace, in other words, Adam is under a, co a covenant of works in Genesis chapter 2. What do I mean by that? I don't mean by that that if Adam does good works, then God is obligated to be to, to, met, to reward him because he's a creature. If he does good works, he's only done his duty. You guys follow me on that? He doesn't deserve a reward. You understand what that means? So if your children do their duty, you shouldn't reward them. We, you reward them when they go above and beyond. It's like, oh, you obeyed. Here's a reward. No, it's you disobeyed. Here's some discipline. You follow? But if they obey, they do their duty. You don't give them reward. If you're rewarding your kids for doing their duty, you're turning them into adults you're not going to be thrilled with. You reward them for going above and beyond their duty, right? The, the Lord treats us the same way. However, we can't go above and beyond our duty. Adam couldn't go above and beyond his duty as a creature in Genesis 2. You guys follow me on that? He couldn't. Um, you say, well, there, there's a... There's a there's a technical name for that in medieval theology. Anybody know what it is? To go above and beyond his duty? Supererogation. Yes, supererogatory merit. Um, it's above and beyond. Saints have supererogatory merit, so they take their extra merit and put it in the, you know, the treasury of merit, and then we go visit their, their relics, and then we get some of that. Yeah, that's, this is the Catholic, Roman Catholic view, not my view. Okay, <laughs> just a clear. Go visit that and pull down a little bit of extra merit from them. Adam had no, couldn't get supererogatory merit. He couldn't go above and beyond his duty so that God owed him something. But God covenanted with him. That's what I'm making the point of. God promised him, um, do this and live, do this and die. So God obligated himself to give Adam a reward uh, for doing his duty. Okay? That's the kind of thing you could do as a parent. If you do this, I'll give you this. Right? That's... You've gone above and beyond. I'm, I'm giving you a reward because I've obligated myself to give you the reward. Um, yes, sir. Both, both in the physical and the spiritual sense. So Adam dies in in three ways. Really, he dies bodily, uh, not immediately, but eventually. Dies bodily. He dies um, in the sense of spiritually, like he he is. Um, turned away from God, separated from God, in communion in union with God, and then he's going to die eternally in the sense of condemnation after his physical death. So, um, yeah, all three of those aspects are there. All, th all three of those aspects are regained in Christ. But that covenant was a perpetual means out of that? 
No, that covenant, if he would have, if he would have kept the covenant, he was already alive. If he would have kept the covenant, he wouldn't have died. Correct. If he would have kept the covenant of works, he would not have died. He would have, he would have at some point been inheriting eternal life. Okay. He doesn't, though. He falls into sin. And what happens? What's that? Yeah, God makes another covenant. We call it the covenant of grace versus the covenant of works, not because Genesis 2 says, here's the covenant of works, and Genesis 3 says, here's the covenant of grace. But we call it that because of the substance of it. What is it? In one case, do this and live. In the other case, live and do this. What's going to make me alive? God is. In other words, I'm already a sinner, already dead, and God comes and says, in spite of all your sin, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bless you. In spite of the fact you deserve a curse, I'm going to be kind to you. On what basis? Because that's who I am as God. That's what I'm going to do. You guys follow the difference there? Okay. So now he offers that, um, and it's going to come in a a particular seat of the woman. The first formal administration of that, first formal administration of that, um, is with Abraham. It's it's begun in Genesis 3.15. It's being administered, but not formally administered. In fact, if you guys know, if you've read Genesis 3 through 11, you know they're in some kind of covenant with God because God's promised them to be because you see sacrifices even happening there. You see um, Abel and Cain, you know, Cain and Abel, you know, in Cain's case, messing up the sacrifice, etc. So they understand there's, there's a whole formed religion of some kind, but we don't have a lot of details about that. We just, they don't, all those blanks are filled in for us. You guys remember that? And I'm not going to fill them in for you because there's no, no way for me to do that. So I can, I can make some assumptions. We get to Genesis 12, we get the first formal administration where the, the details are sort of given, okay, for this covenant of grace. So look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you. Just so we're clear, Abram's country is where? Mesopotamia, Ur. Yeah, Ur of the Chaldees, right? And so he's from there. And what is his, what is the religion there? Is it pagan? Okay. Um, so this is the Lord calling Abram in more than one way, right? So he calls him from essentially a pagan household in a pagan country. says, go to the land, I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. We call that a people, right? A people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, I'm going to have you go from this pl- this land to a different land, place. I'm going to make you a great people, and I'm going to put you under my rule and blessing. And in you, not only shall your people be blessed, i.e. the family that will come from Abraham's loins, if you will, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so now you have these promises that people, place, and blessing. Are you guys following me on that? Okay. What was lost in the garden? Adam was God's people. I know it's, 
weird to say because he's really God's person. I say he's God's people because he's a federal head. He represents the people of God. Adam is God's people. He lives in God's place, and he's under God's rule and blessing. When he sins, he's kicked out of God's place, no longer God's people, under the curse. Now, Adam, the Lord also is gracious to Adam, because you guys know he, he also makes that promise to Adam, and then Adam believes, and he cuts the animals and clothes Adam and Eve. Um, but the point is, the status is changing. So you're, you were God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. You sinned. Now you're not God's people. You're not in God's place. You're not under God's rule and blessing. So that they're kicked out of the garden. And you'll notice in Genesis, especially as we go through the book of Genesis, they keep going further east of Eden, which is a demonstration they're moving further and further away from the presence of God is what's being said there. They're getting more and more into wickedness um, is, is the idea. And so... Adam's God's or Abraham's God's people in God's place under God's rule of blessing. We're given more details about that covenant. I'm not going to get into it, but that becomes the thing. So then Abram grows into a nation, right, from his family. You have Isaac, Jacob, and then from Jacob, the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, and they end up in Egypt. You guys remember the story. The seed of the woman still coming. He was coming from Adam, i.e., or the woman from the seed of the woman. He was coming from um, Abram, your nation, so humanity, the nation of Israel. So you guys understand the distinction? Adam and Eve, humanity. Abram, or Abraham, the nation of Israel. Genesis 49, tribe of Judah. It's coming from that of the 12th. You hear the narrowing? Humanity, nation, tribe. Okay. So by the time you get to 2 Samuel 7, house of David. I even narrowed it down to the house even. So humanity, so you're narrowing it. Who is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah coming from? But Genesis 49, 50, where, where is Israel at? Egypt. They're in Egypt, but they're a large family, like 70 family members or so. Okay. Um, large family, but they're, they're in Egypt. Um, 430 years later, they're still in Egypt. And they're under slavery to Pharaoh and they've grown into a mighty nation, but a nation in slavery. The Lord raises up Moses, takes them out of the Exodus, and where are they? And he says to them, you're my people. I'm your God. And then he says, I'm going to take you where? You're going to leave Egypt and go where? To the promised land, the land I have for you. Which, by the way, has, if you guys remember, basically the same boundaries as the Garden of Eden. The rivers and the other details basically give you the same kind of basic boundaries of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to take you to this promised land and I'm going to dwell with you there. You guys remember that? And he actually says, here's how I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to build this, you're going to build this tabernacle and I'll dwell there. And he gives them a priesthood and a sacrificial system. You guys remember all of this, right? Laws, how they live together as a nation. You're my people in my place. You're under my rule. Here's the Ten Commandments and my blessing. I'm going to bless you there. But then he says, if you do not believe me and you do not obey me, what am I going to do? Because remember the part of the Mosaic Covenant? Curse you. I'm going to curse you. And I'm going to curse you specifically with exile. I'm going to say, you're not my people. I'm going to kick you out of my land. And, and you're going to be under the curse that way. So you guys, it just keeps happening this way, right? And then you see this cycle in Israel's history. So where do we get to um, when we left off? This is true with 
You know, if you talk Adam, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, Joshua, the Davidic monarchs, like if you keep saying the same pattern, don't you? All the way through until you get to the exile. They're kicked out by Babylon. Okay, so we went through that Babylonian exile already. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah bring us to the other side of the exile. Remember, during the exile, there are prophets being sent, said, there's only so long until you until your return to the land. Now, if you're Israel, the people of God, and you, you want to be under God's rule and blessing, you know you need to do what? What kind of people do you need to be? Well, let's start there. What kind of people do you need to be? Uh, a faithful, obedient people, people who believes and obeys. You need to be holy as the Lord is holy. Right? So you need to be that kind of people. You also need to be what? In his place. You need to be in his place. And most specifically, that's the city of Jerusalem. By the time you're at this point in history, that's the city of Jerusalem. And and why is it the city of Jerusalem? Because what's there? The temple. The temple. That's the problem for Israel coming out of exile. What's the problem with the city of Jerusalem and the temple? They're both destroyed. So... We need to rebuild those things so that God will dwell with us. We as his people, so we need to be we need to be a holy people. We need to rebuild the holy place, both the temple and the city. Are you guys following me so far? Okay, those are the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah. We need to be a holy people who rebuild the holy city and the holy temple, because we want to be his people in his place under his rule and blessing. Okay, as is commanded. All right, so those are the themes as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. They're the themes of the whole Bible. Y'all are tracking with that, right? They're the themes of the Bible. Let's let's just come forward to the new covenant church. What are we called? Hit God's people, right? We're his people. And we're also his place. Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple. He dwells in us. And uh, we are under his rule, his commands, his laws, etc., and his blessing. Right? Okay. All right, so that's just continual themes. Um, and if you're disobedient, unfaithful, what's the church supposed to do with you? Excommunicate or exile you. You see how that works? All right. Let's, let's look at the basic layout of the Old Testament. Just to remind you, look at Luke 24, 44. So I want to remind you where we are in the text of Scripture. Luke 24, 44, just so you understand, the layout we're using is not one that um, I just, you know, haphazardly created. It comes from Jesus. That's a decently good authority. <laughs> Verse 44, this is after the resurrection. He said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He has three sections of scripture he talks about there. The law of Moses, what's that? Pentateuch. Huh? The Pentateuch, good. The first five books. The Pentateuch is a Greek word or the Torah, the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's that section we call the Law of Moses. Then he says the prophets. 
What are the prophets? Anybody remember? Covenant law? The prophets will call covenant history. When we say, when they Jesus said the prophets, he meant everything from Joshua, Judges, um, he meant um, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. He was referring to what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. He was referring to what we call the minor prophets, like Hosea or um, or Micah or Malachi or the, the book of the Twelve. So he's referring to all of that when he says the prophets. In the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew ordering of the canon, all of that is under the prophets. They call them latter prophets, um, you know, and former prophets, right? So the former prophets being what we call the historical books. In our Protestant canon, we have the historical books, and then we have the prophetic books. You guys know that? We actually sandwich a thing called the writings in between the historical books and the prophetic books. It's not how the Bible was ordered when Christ was reading it, okay? Um, the Hebrew canon, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew was not ordered that way. Um, we, that's the reason we end with Chronicles. In the Hebrew order of the canon, the last book of the Bible is Chronicles of the Old Testament. In the, uh, and the second to last book of the Bible is Ezra and Nehemiah, um, just, just so you know. So we have covenant law under Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the law of Moses, the prophets are the covenant history, which is the historical books and the prophets. Um, and why I say, why they put them all in the prophets, if you guys remember. Okay, God made these commands in the law. Um, here's how you lived in light of those commands in the law. And here come the prosecuting attorneys telling you uh, the problem with your history. You guys follow that? Okay, and then also not only that, but um, they're going to say, and there are promises God's still going to be gracious to you. And then covenant life would be the writings, what Jesus calls the Psalms. The Psalms is the biggest book in the writings, but the writings are going to cover the wisdom literature. Think Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. They're going to cover, or Song of song, Songs, they're going to cover other kinds of literature. Think Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, um, Ruth. We took Ruth out of order with the historical books, but technically Ruth was in the was in the writings. Actually, historically, Ruth comes right after. If you didn't know this, right after Proverbs thirty one is the book of Ruth, and then right after that is Esther, uh, which is in the writings. Yes, sir. So where did the Catholics get like the other books? Then? The oh, that what we call the apocryphal texts. Yeah, like First, Second Maccabees, etc. They're all in the. They're written in about the first to second century BC, twelve they have, and they are they are translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and so uh, because they're there, um, the church recognized them as useful, as helpful, but not as scripture because Jesus never refers to those books as scripture, nor do the apostles. Um, in fact, the Jews in the first century AD, around 90 AD, the Orthodox Jews of that period, even said those 12 books were not part of scripture. Um, they weren't in any of our lists as scripture, though Jerome translates them. So when Jerome does the Latin Vulgate in the late 300s, early 400s AD, when Jerome translates the Bible to Latin, which is the major text Rome uses for 1500 years until Vatican II, so, which was like, what, was back in the 1960s, Brett? Yeah, like, yeah so um, they used that whole time. 
they, those books when Jerome translated were included, but they were not part of our, uh, any council's list of canon until the Council of Trent. So around the 1560s, they said those 12 books are part of scripture. I would say those 12 books are actually helpful, insightful, good, just like any good Christian book you read, but not scripture. Um, I think you're missing out if you don't read them, but I, I don't think, you know, you, you, you still have everything you need for life and godliness in the Bible, um, but there's there's an extra, there's a benefit to having read those. So, all right, so books and then the writings would be all the wisdom and writings literature. So wisdom, Psalms, writings, Ezra, Nehemiah, that are the kind of writings, okay? Post-exilic, just so you guys remember, Ezra, Nehemiah, lands is the second to last book of the writings. Notice I didn't say second to last books of the writings. Um, I'll get into that in a, well, no, I'll just tell you now, in case you didn't know. Ezra and Nehemiah is originally one book. It, it's originally one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. We split it into two, uh, much later. Uh, just like first and second Samuel was just Samuel. First and second Kings, just Kings. First and second Chronicles, just chronicles. We've split all those down the road. Now, now Protestants didn't. It was split way before us. Uh, but my point is, those were split apart. But Ezra and Nehemiah are originally one book. So remember, we did first, second Samuel. I took them together as one book as Samuel. We did first, second Kings. I really took them to book together as one book as Kings. We're going to do the same thing with Ezra and Nehemiah, and the same thing with first, second Chronicles. The reason is, is because they're working out the same themes from beginning to end. So when you split them and read one of those, each of those books independently, you sort of miss the big point that comes together with both books. Um, all right, so let's... Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the return from exile to rebuild the temple. Um, so look at Ezra 1 with me briefly. Ezra chapter 1. Tell the story of the return from exile. Remember, they're taken into exile by Babylon. How long are they in exile? 70 years. Technically not. About 54 years, but it's supposed to be, it's, it's prophesied 70, but that's actually using prophetic, right? just kind of talk. But yes, basically some, something like 54 to, we don't exactly know, but somewhere in there. I mean, maybe someone will dig something up that shows it was actually 70 so far. The evidence doesn't seem to indicate that. And that's not what the 70 meant. So, but I already dealt with that in Daniel. Sure. And it's too much to revisit now. Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So here, here's, notice the spirit of the Lord is stirring up who? Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, we don't have any reason to believe Cyrus, king of Persia, is a believer. Uh, and you know the spirit of the Lord does work through believers and unbelievers. Any, any proof, any other proof besides Cyrus? Because I know this is hard because I, keep, I always hear this. Saul had the Holy Spirit. He lost the Holy Spirit. So believers can lose the Holy Spirit. Well, there's some problems there. The first assumption is that Saul was a believer. The second assumption is that only believers can receive the Holy Spirit in some way, or that it only comes in one way. 
right? Um, the problem with that is, can we men can we think of anybody else who received the Holy Spirit in some way but wasn't a believer? Balaam. Okay, Balaam. Probably Cyrus here, I would argue Cyrus. I'll go forward. Judas is scary. Who goes around with the apostles and does miracles. Even remember the apostles were even raising the dead. Okay? Can the Holy Spirit empower people um, to do his will? Right? While they're not believers. Yes. Okay? Yes. He's the Holy Spirit. He created all things. He can do whatsoever pleases him. Simple enough? Okay? That there's we have to start learning to make distinctions. This is part of the problem with systematic theology, is when you start pulling all the data scripture together, you 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 have to sometimes say we distinguish. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to someone. We have to distinguish the ways in which he comes to someone. Right? Um, or else we start to make a mess of the Bible. We start to have real problems. Okay, so here he comes, comes on Cyrus. He stirs him up. It doesn't say he regenerates his heart and makes him love the Lord and his law. Okay, so he stirs him up to do something the Lord has going on. It says, make a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, that sure sounds like faith, but it's, it's there's other reasons why I'm, I'm not convinced it is. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What's the house referring to? The temple. The temple where God dwells. Like, you want to be in God's house. Why? Right? Because God's house is where God dwells and where his people dwell with him. So I build a house, the temple, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Notice that. May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor... Now, I'm going to ask you guys to start thinking about your biblical theology. Think about past themes and, and tell me if this little text rings a bell for anybody. And let each survivor... These are the people in exile under Babylon being told by... Technically, Medo-Persia here, but, you know, being told by the king of that area... And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Does that remind anybody of anything? Israel, a people in exile, oppressed under a, a foreign nation. They're being told to leave and go back to their land. And they're being sent with what? With wealth. Hey, hey, what'd you say, Josh? The yeah, the treasures of Egypt, right? It's the same kind of language. Okay, it's, it's, and you're, you notice this in Isaiah particularly, but we're told that there's not just the first exodus, but the first exodus becomes a kind of template for a coming second exodus, a new exodus. Isaiah really pulls this thing through, but I want to say this about it. This little exodus here is like a taste of it, but not really what it is. Because the real second exodus is coming in Christ. And actually, Luke and Acts as a whole, written by Luke, those two volumes together actually demonstrate that the, that the whole new covenant is a second exodus. Um, I don't have time to teach that, but we will get there in the New Testament. So, 
All right, notice what he says. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with silk, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridoth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Okay, so... Ezra and Nehemiah is telling us about the story of the return from exile to rebuild the temple, the house of God, and the city. Look at Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Um, I just want you to note first, we have a speech from Ezra in Ezra 1, and now a speech from Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1. This is when I'm going to talk about authorship in a second, but just keep that in mind. Okay, look what it says. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who kept covenant, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his command and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel and your, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have cho that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of the king. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So he, he's going to go. He hears about the walls being down, uh, the city being in disarray, and he's going to go deal with it. He's going to go clean up the city. That's part of Israel's disobedience. You'll remember some of the prophets are going to come in and chastise Israel after the exile. There are post-exilic prophets who come in and chastise Israel after the exile. Why do they chastise them? Because they didn't. 
because they're not rebuilding the temple, they're not really rebuilding the city. Instead, they're spending all their money to, to build themselves really nice houses. You're building yourself really nice little homes, but you're not obeying the Lord. Um, it's all about you're spending all your money on you, and the greatest blessing you can have is, and I'm just going to press on this Christian, the greatest blessing you can have is not a really nice pad, right? A really nice home. It's the Lord. So it indicates to you the state of their hearts that they're more concerned about building nice homes for themselves than they are about building the dwelling place of God where they can be blessed in his presence, right? Um, when I say the church, I don't mean the building. So that's what I'm saying. It's the problem of Christians now, including I'm sure all of us, that when we receive funds, when we do well, we think about how we can make our lives here and now even more comfortable than they already are, rather than how do we build the household of the church of God. When I say the church, I don't mean like, how do I make the church building look big, but to build the church, i.e. giving funds to make sure the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. So that God's people, so God dwells with his people, right? That's just what we tend to do. We live the most comfortable lives in human history, and we're always dreaming of how they could be even more comfortable, right? <laughs> um, and then and spending that end. And that's essentially what Israel gets caught up in doing, and, and likely part of what Nehemiah is confessing, right? Um, all right. So it's to rebuild the temple and the city and to reform the people of God into faith. Oh, it should be say into being faithful to God's covenant law. Uh, I'll go back and fix that. Into being faithful to God's covenant law. So look at Ezra 3, 2. I'll give you some examples. In other words, they need to reform the city. What did I tell you guys about this? The city, the temple, they build the temple of the city and so God's place and they need to be a new kind of people. Right? So God's city... God's dwelling place in the temple and themselves as people all need to be reformed. Okay? Um, and so they we hear this. Look at Ezra 3, 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the sons of Shealtel, with his kin, kinsmen. And they built the altar of, God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. You've already seen the law of Moses mentioned. You're going to keep seeing it, right? Because they're supposed to reform their lives in accord with it. Look at Ezra 7, 6. Ezra 7, 6. I'm just giving you a taste of this now. Now, this Ezra, let's talk about who Ezra is. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Notice the emphasis. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Go down to verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart. I would tell you this is the, 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 the life of any Christian, um, but particularly of the ministers of the word of God. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. Now, I want to notice this. He studies it and then he does it. And then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel, right? Uh, when I say the minister of the gospel, he's to study it, then to do it, then to teach it, right? Um, not to stand up and tell other people to do it. <laughs> well, he does it himself. All right, um, so look at seven, uh, excuse me, look at Nehemiah 8.1. I'll give you a couple other examples of this. 
the importance of the law of Moses, the keeping of it and doing it, um, teaching it, 8.1. You're going to see this all over the place. And all the, uh, Nehemiah 8.1, you've got Ezra here again. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded um, Israel. So Ezra, Ezra brought, the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Um, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose um, and then these other people, and he opened up, looked down at verse 5, and he opened, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, because he's on a raised platform, above them, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, um, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Um, look down at verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. So Ezra stands up in front of the people and he reads from the Bible and he explains it so they understand it, right? Um, how long did it say that happened for? From early morning, roughly 6 a.m. or so until midday. That's a long time, folks, to stand there and hear the reading of the word and teaching of the word, isn't it? So uh, when, when we go 50 minutes, move along. It's not a big deal, right? It's not half the day, all right? Um, but that's not the application of this text, by the way. So the point is, what I'm trying to say about this text is, is that notice the importance of the teaching of the law of Moses and the need of the people to respond, to reform their life according to it. Okay, um, look at Ezra 9.3. We'll just look at one more, 9.3. And they stood up in their, oh, excuse me, Nehemiah 9.3. I apologize, Nehemiah 9.3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. You guys know what a quarter of the day is, right? Well, morning to evening, you say it's 24 hours. No, morning to evening is roughly 12 hours, give or take, depending on the time of the year. So a quarter of the day is three hours. Another quarter of the day is three hours. So, you know, roughly somewhere around, give or take six hours, they read and confessed. Um, you're understanding the centrality of the people needing to reform their lives according to the law. They need to be a they need to be the kind of people, a holy people, in a holy place where God dwells with them. Okay. Um, all right. So the authorship is likely Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, due to their respective speeches, with Ezra putting together the final form. Now, there's a lot of reasons why scholars argue that, but there's the speeches of Ezra and the speeches of Nehemiah, which they clearly gave. There's other information in these two books 
but then they're given a final form, um, and and most scholars think Ezra's probably the one who did the final form because he's a scribe. That's what he did. Um, so he probably brought it together. Um, the book is written between, so what's the date of the book? It's written between 538 BC. Okay, why do I say that? Ezra 1, 2 through 4 talks about the decree of who? Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, when does Cyrus, king of Persia, give the decree? Mm, uh, roughly at the earliest date, we could say 538 BC. Okay? It could be a later date than 5. When I, you guys know when we say BC, we, by later date, the numbers get smaller. You guys know that, right? Okay? Uh, because you're, you're working toward 1, right? So um, it, at the earliest, Cyrus, king of Persia, could have given the decree is 538 BC. That's the earliest. We don't know for sure that he gave a decree in 538 BC or that he gave the decree we're talking about here. Um, it's difficult because of the way we date the kings. Um, you know, as far as um, Nebuchadnezzar and his follower, his son, grandson, etc., and then Cyrus, the, um, the Persian, and Darius the Mede and the Medo-Persian Empire. You guys understand extra biblical historical evidence um, is not as uh, thorough in every case as we'd like it to be, right? We have a lot, but not enough to fill in every blank. Okay, so you have to be kind of careful when you make exact claims about dates, unless the Bible tells you it was this year. But the Bible won't tell you that because we don't get that dating until Constantine. Okay, you guys know that, right? Okay, so the Bible's not going to give you a rough correspondence to our dates. Um, all right, and 423 BC. Why 423 BC is the 423 BC is the latest it could have been written. 538 BC is the is the earliest it could have begun to be written. Okay, but it has to be complete by 423 BC or so. The events of it. Look at Ezra or look at Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. And verse 6, while this was taking place, this, this is Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem. Okay, the latest that could have happened is 423 BC. Now, I am not suggesting that Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, lived for 115 years and completed this book. It's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm saying is that's the date range of the events of the book, the possible earliest and latest. Okay, follow me on that. My guess is it's written somewhere around 423 BC, um, and the events start before that, within 100 years or so. Okay, I know that's like deeply unsatisfying when you want to have every answer. But we, we can't, you know, it's dishonest to say that we, we know more than we do. All right. Um, an outline, just so you know, uh, of the book. The return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple from Ezra 1 through 6. So you're, you're going to see, this is a very simple outline. Actually, um, Mark Futado has a much more detailed outline, but I just took the highlights um, for the purpose of what we're doing here, the return of the exiles and rebuilding the temple, Ezra's one, Ezra 1 through 6, the return of Ezra 
and rebuild the temple, Ezra 7 through 10. So those are what we should be going over in the next couple of weeks. The return of Nehemiah and rebuilding of the city walls from Nehemiah 1.1 through 7.3. And the return of more exiles and the rebuilding of the people of God, Nehemiah 7.4 through 13.31. So that covers the book, the, the, the book Ezra-Nehemiah, these four movements. But if you notice, the themes are, are pretty relentlessly similar. We've got to rebuild, we've got to return from exile, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, reform the people. Okay, um, that's what we're going to drive after, and that will actually press us toward Christ. Uh, the city of God is uh, the people of God, right? There's a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, right? Um, the kingdom of God, if you will. The temple of God is where He dwells. Um, that's pushing us forward to the church is the temple of God, right? Um, first Christ in the church, but we're going to push in all this. The blessing of God are dwelling with his people, right, that, that, that are reformed. How do we get reformed? What do we receive when we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit, okay? I, I don't mean temporally, when it's, I'm not going to get into that. The point is, you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. What is he doing? He's reforming you. I'll put my spirit on in them, and I will cause them to walk in my law, keep my statutes, take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So there's a reforming of the people, right? There's a reforming of the people, just like we're seeing here, a reforming of the people. Um, that's why there's no, there's not, there's not any concept in the New Testament, you know, of you're, you're justified by faith in Christ alone for sure. But if you're in him, there's no sense of a people that are in him who are walking in wickedness, who aren't walking in holiness. It doesn't exist because the spirit indwells the people in him and reforms them into, or conforms them to the image of Christ. Right? So, so there's not, you know, you don't get to just, if you will, coming off of my Christological study all summer, you don't just get to take Christ as your priest who paid for your sins. He, he's also king and prophet. He's the king who subdues Satan's sin and death, and he's the prophet who tells you to knock it off and behave properly. You guys follow me on that? So um, that's, that's, that's where we just need to be clear. We, we get the whole Christ by faith um, in all of his blessings. And the great blessing is not just that you're forgiven your sins and declared righteous. The great blessing is that you're being transformed into his image so you know him. And walk with him in communion with him. Holiness, in that sense, is the greater blessing in, in as much as it's the, it's the termination, it's like the end point of all the blessings that I'm with him and I know him. Um, all right. Any questions? Yes, sir. Which one really seemed like a distraction at the time, but... Chronicles is part of the writings. It kind of seems to me it looks very similar to like the Samuels and the Kings and stuff like that. It does, doesn't it? But it's written much later, so it's it's not written during the historical like it's written post exile. Uh, it's it's an interesting book because it's it is part of the writings. Is it written post exile? I need to look at it, make sure I'm right about that. But it it's 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 put it's the last book of the Old Testament, and it. 
retells the story of Israel much differently. When you read Chronicles, you have you have a you have a godly King David with no Bathsheba. Go read Chronicles. That story is not there. You have a godly King Solomon with no wife, no thousand wives and concubines. Um, and you have a people still in exile. What's fascinating is Ezra and Nehemiah talks about what the people do after exile. And the last book of the Jewish canon, the Old Hebrew Old Testament, has them still in exile. And and I'll address why in Chronicles, but you know, sort of to steal my own thunder later, it's making a very significant theological point about the fact that though Israel has returned from exile, they really haven't. So they're back in the city with the temple rebuilt. They really have never come out of exile. And they're waiting for the one who will bring them out. Right? Um, and then it goes, then the Bible goes dark while they wait. Right? For that one. And then we get the opening of Matthew, you're right. The, um, the, 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 the birth, the narrative, the birth of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Okay, here he is. And if you read Matthew's genealogy, it's, it's really focused and center on until the exile, the deportation, et cetera, et cetera, coming back. And it's really focused on picking up where Chronicles sort of left off. Yes, sir. How does Ezra Nehemiah fit into the framework of covenant life as opposed to covenant Yeah, great. Ezra and Nehemiah fall. Focus on covenant life in as much as the real focus is we have to be a people of God obedient to his commands um, if we want to dwell with him. That we need to reform our own lives. Um, the city has to be, if we want to dwell with him. We have to be a holy people to dwell with him, um, which they fail to be. Yes, sir? I kind of leads right into what I was going to ask you. Kind of actually, but in the same aspect where the Jews had to be a holy and obedient people for God to dwell with them in the temple. And they go visit him in the temple. Yeah. Now, we believers, our body has become the temple. So if we are not holy and obedient, it's not like God's not there as much. More like we're just distancing ourselves. That's, from him. that's a not. great question, Brian. So this is there's it's a longer answer I want to give, but but I will give you one text that sort of speaks to that. Look at First Corinthians five. First Corinthians five, because remember the first use of the temple of God, you are the temple, is actually speaking to the whole church and not just to me as an individual. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 will use that. You are the temple of God. Hey, you guys know the word you. Here's the problem. What's the problem in English with the word you? It's not singular and plural. What's that? Plural. Yeah, there's no distinction between singular and plural, right? Now, there used to be when we had thee, thou, thine, etc. Okay? But we've, we've dropped the singular and plural distinction with you, which is you. Unless you live in the South, then it's y'all. Right now, you got a plural again. So maybe we need to translate the Bible in accord with Southern language so we get the plural back. But in First Corinthians three, the temple of God is actually y'all. Y'all are the temple of God, right? Um, in First Corinthians six, it's a singular you. Your body is the temple, right? Um, in as much as you're a 
a living stone within it, right? Christ being the chief cornerstone. But but notice 1 Corinthians 5 to answer your question about what happens if we're unholy. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let whom has done this be removed from among you. For though absent the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. They're boasting in the fact that they're so gracious. We're so gracious for keeping this ungodly sexual immoral, sexual immoral man around. He's like, that's not a good thing to boast about. Right? So he goes on. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, in other words, I can go on there. He's going to tell them to purge the evil person from among you. But this is a passage on truth, discipline. So the reason I bring that up is um, the New Testament is going to talk often about how uh, we're being transformed, you know, or renewed day by day in the image of God more and more in ever increasing glory, we're becoming more and more like him. But not that there's no wrestle with sin that still happens. However, again, we're going to distinguish the person who's no longer wrestling with sin, but just giving into it unrepentantly. You're removed from the body because you're saying, actually, we don't have any evidence you're a believer. You're a false professor from what we can tell. Because you're not fighting sin anymore. You're just unrepentantly giving into it. So that I want to distinguish between um, an immature believer who is being transformed and in the fight and an unbeliever who's just like, yeah, Jesus will save me. That's good. Now I'm going to do whatever I want, regardless of, of whether it offends him. Fire insurance. Yeah, the fire insurance sort of faith. That's right, or mentality. Um, but I want to be really careful. I read that passage because I'm talking about church discipline as the extreme case. This guy just doesn't care. So you want to remove that man from the temple of God because he's defiling like an unclean animal being taken to the temple of God. He's an unclean man going into the temple of God, the Christ church. He needs to be removed from it in that sense. So priests shouldn't be running around by a single case. What's that? So priests shouldn't be running around by a single case. Noel, that's a different topic. I'm not going to get you. But yeah, but the general point there is, is that man has to be removed. And so, but it's not the Christians don't struggle with sin. Read Romans 7 where Paul's like, Ah, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I don't want to do, I do. Right? And he's just wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Because the issue is, you, though saved and being renewed, you are still, you still have an old creation body. You still live in the old creation earth. But you're a new creation spiritual. Um, and so there's a fight between that old Adamic nature and this new um, nature in Christ. And it is a battle, for lack of better terms. If you're battling, that's a good sign. And if you're like, I love you, 
creation. I just want to do everything in the old creation and hopefully God will forgive me someday. Then, then that's where we're in 1 Corinthians 5. We need to get you out of the temple of God because you're defiling it. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, could you make an application to that on an individual level? Um, like in our own personal struggles with sin and how that may... Can, well, I mean, that's a really vague God. question. So so, fall, so what? give me an example, Josh. So... Without having to expose too much about yourself. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, so if you're... If you're if you're struggling with sin, um, and you are, like you say, as, as an individual, you can still recognize the the war. You can still recognize the battle. Um, is there a sense in which, um, as you struggle in sin, your communion with God in your own spiritual walk with Him is being uh, negatively? Affected. Yes, for sure. Um, I, I think it's right, good and right to say that when we come to Christ in faith, um, re, we're born again, we're given, let's say, the gift of faith, right? Paul calls it a gift. You've been given the gift of faith. Um, this gift of faith in Christ by which you apprehend the promises. They're yours, right? And you're given... Um, the gift of hope, which anchors you in heaven in Christ, right? And you're given the gift of love. In other words, you're being transformed into someone who loves God and loves his people and loves your neighbor. Um, those are all gifts that are birthed in you by the Spirit. And um, you can, you grow in all of those, but you don't grow in them let me, let me say this part first. The more you grow in those, the more you sense your communion with the Lord. The more you, the more your communion with the Lord is encouraged, is encouraged. The more you don't grow in them, the more distant you feel from communion with the Lord, or you are. The reason you feel that is because you are distant from communion with the Lord. But your faith can be weak, right? So you have doubts, okay? So you're praying, your hope, can be distracted, so you anchor it here. Like, man, if the next elections don't work out, what's gonna happen? If the monetary system fails, what's gonna, I hear a lot of conservative Christians talking about the apocalyptic fall of the West. My guess is the West is probably gonna fall. Um, I don't know how soon, but it's not looking good. We're just basically killing it. And I hear most Christians freaking out about that, right? Because their hope is not in heaven with Christ, it's here. Um, so you can wane, wax and wane in your hope. You can also wax and wane in your love. So the love of God and others. Um, you know, today I love Josh. I see Josh and and I, I want to serve him for God's sake, not for, not so he likes me, right? Because there's human love. Or I love you for my own sake, right? Um, but there's also the love that where I love you for God's sake. So even if you don't end up liking me, that's okay. I'm still going to love you. Like the loving of your enemies. Right, so I, I might wax and wane in my, my love for Josh. I'm just picking up because he's the first person in my glance. So, right, so I don't, Josh, my love for you only grows, just so we're clear. But the, uh, no, but I mean, I might wax and wane in it. But my point is, is that I think that we have a, um, and the more that we grow in faith, hope, and love, the more we, we commune with the Lord and we sense the tangible communion with the Lord even. Um, however, 
Um, you, you, while you're giving those gifts, you have to nurture them. You have to nurture them. You have to practice them, right? Uh, you have to practice them. So you have to mortify the flesh, the, the hatred that you would have toward people, the selfishness that you would have. You have to kill it, um, the lust you would have, the, the hoping in this earth, the being given over to another master besides the Lord, like your wealth or your comforts or whatever. You have to put that to death actively, and you have to put on godliness, which means I'm in the word, and I'm not just reading three chapters real quick and getting it done, but I'm meditating on the word. I'm asking the Lord to help show me where I'm not living in accord with his word. I'm asking him to help me grow. I'm meditating upon the fact that Christ is, is my great end, that my hope is not here, but in heaven, that my, you know, you follow me, that therefore I can love other people because no matter what they do to me, um, uh, I belong to Christ and he belongs to me. And, and that's really all that matters, right? So there's a constant, there's a constant working of that out. Most Christians don't have any discipline toward that end. I, that I run into now, it's not, I, there's not a lot of meditating on Christ. I'm not saying they're unbelievers. I'm just saying they stay in a kind of state of immaturity most of their lives. Because they think they can just like, I'm going to put off drunkenness. I'm going to put off lust or I'm going to put off this. And they don't ever replace it with, with growing in these virtues. Right? They just put off, they try to put off sin. If you don't replace it with something, you're just going to go back to it. Like a paper, like a dog returning with vomit. You're just going to keep going back, right? So you have to put on uh, these godly qualities. You have to be in the Word, you have to meditate, you have to be around other believers consistently, you have to be under the preaching of the Word. That's why I keep saying, folks, the mo most important decision you make in your life is not what city you live in, it's not what state you live in, it's not, I mean, red state versus blue state or whatever stuff people are, it's... It's are you in a church that you're under the word of God being preached clearly, consistently, being pointed to Christ and with brothers and sisters around you who are encouraging you in that regard. You guys follow me on that? Stirring one another up to love and good works. That's the most important decision in front of you because apart from that, you're going to get eaten by your sin. So I think the practical outworking is, um, is that you need to be around brothers and sisters who point you in the right direction, stir one another up to love and good works, right? Speak the truth and love to one another. I, speaking the truth and love to one another doesn't mean confronting each other. People use it that way. I mean, that's fine. You can confront each other, but it, it also includes encouraging each other. <laughs> it's about pointing out the truth. Um, but in a church where they take the word seriously, they worship according to the word, in a and then in a family context where it's like my wife and I and our kids, we're, we're in the word, we pray, maybe morning and evening, not just occasionally, um, but it really owns our life. We're, we're meditating on the Lord all the time. Maybe I, you know, the Jews and the early Christians started their day and ended their day with, with prayer. And um, I just think we've become spiritually lethargic and we watch television all the time and look at the internet and we wonder why our souls are small in a sense. You know, when I say small, I mean not formed in Christ, immature children, spiritual children.
Um, yeah, we don't take the Lord's Day very seriously. We won't even give a whole day to saying I'm going to put away aside secular entertainments and concerns and just be with God's people and be in God's word and worship. Like a whole day is a lot to give to the Lord, you know? Look at all the stuff I'm giving up. And then we think, how come I'm not growing very much? So, yeah. Brian, you had a question? Just like on me, it's more of a balance. Yep, that's right. It, it really is more of a, like, if the faith is stronger, then it's much easier not to sin. Yep, that's why I'm saying, that, well, that's right, you grow stronger in your resistance against sin by mortifying the, what's that? It's harder to make the faith stronger. Well, yeah, well, there's, there's a whole series of disciplines. I, what I mean by that, that I just mentioned, these means of grace, where I'm regularly in the Word, prayer, and I think the biggest thing we tend to leave out is meditation. By meditation, I don't mean sitting around, you know, doing this kind of business. I mean, chewing on God's Word and thinking about it and all the ways that it works out in our lives, the ways in which we need to repent. Um, we don't do a lot of that. The ways in which God has blessed us and been kind to us. We don't reflect enough on how good God is to us. Just how good he is. Maybe I should back up that. We don't reflect enough on how good he is. If we do anything, we jump right to how good he is to us. You, you guys know what I mean by that? Um, so he becomes, like God becomes sort of instrumental to our good rather than he is our good. He becomes sort of means to our good. So that we always ask for application. Application is good. But, but we're, we're relentlessly asking for it as if God exists. God exists to bring me to my good. Not he, not he is my good. Right? So we just need to, I think, do a lot more meditate on who he is. Um, that will help you. I, I don't think you should mostly meditate on how you sin. Like, recognize it. Ask the Lord to show you if you're not noticing it. Repent. And meditate on who he is and then what he's done. You're constantly, by the way, I mean, Josh, having done years of counseling, can tell you if you're constantly reflecting on your own foibles and failures, you're just being selfish in a kind of self, you know, loathing way. Navel-gazing. What's that? Navel-gazing. Yeah, navel gazing. You gotta look at God's goodness. Um, if there's anything I learned from Ian and being with the Scottish church this summer, um, it's their, their meditation on who God is was, was, uh, remarkable. Remarkable. You all have heard Ian pray and you think, oh my. Why can't I pray like that? I wish I prayed like that. I'm going to tell you, every man in Scotland I heard pray, prays like that. Now, what is happening here? Uh, they sing. It'll, it, 50 people were in a room and it sounded like 500. Right? And you go, what's going on here? Well, there's a, the Lord's Day. Spectacular. Like, 
celebration all day long with the church. And I was like, what's going on here? Well, what it is, I'm talking about the faithful good churches. Church of Scotland's dead, but the, the remnant there is, is doing quite well. It, it's, it's, there's a constant sense of um, adoration of God. They really adore God. Um, the ones I, the people I ran into, compared to what I'm used to here. Um, we, we just jump right to thanks for all this. Forgive me for this. Help me do better. Uh, spend very little time meditating on who God is. Um, all right. So I'm going to, uh, some of us are going to breakfast at Old River Grill. Are anybody going, by the way? Okay, yep. Yeah, some of us are going to breakfast at Old River Grill. You're welcome to join us. If you're not going, that's fine. We understand. Um, it's right there on Brimhall, and we go to the one on Brimhall and uh, Callaway. So see you there. Next week, Ezra 1 through 6. So if you haven't, Read it. Is that what I said? Yep. Ezra 1 through 6. Read Ezra 1 through 6. Pay attention for these themes. Right? Pay attention for these themes. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the goodness um, that you have reflected about yourself in your word. We we recognize that, that you are kind to us in so many ways because you are a good God. And we, we ask that you would help us to be a people who meditate continually on the fact that you are good and powerful and wise. That we would think about that and know that, that to know you is our greatest good, to look to you. And we pray that you would grow us in, in strengthening our, and maturing our faith, hope, and love so that we walk um, as Christ did, so that we're transformed into his image uh, from one degree of glory to another. We know this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Help us to grow in such a way. Help us to find our joy in you, not of the things of this world, to, to see our lives, our great reward anchored in heaven with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.